Yeah, I just want to reiterate, thank you so much for the way that helped us move, and that was just a real blessing. And we've had a number of moves lately, and uh, this is going to be the last one, Lord willing, for a good long while. So um, we're excited about where we are. And uh, it's, you know, we're just kind of walking by faith, and, you know, I, we just really felt like God was moving us on, and it's time to get a job, and Settle down. And you don't really, I don't have any prophetic understanding, but I just know, I'm just really glad that the upheaval we were experiencing last fall wasn't happening right now. And it just kind of feels like, thank you, Lord, that we're settled for right now and not moving and traveling. So, um, and speaking of things falling into place, um, I was started working on this sermon about six weeks ago when Keith was preaching on um, do you see this woman? He was preaching from Luke 7, 44 um, and talking about seeing people, really seeing people. And uh, I want to speak on seeing people and especially seeing the mental anguish that people might be under. The, it's hard to see. It's hard to see. And it's just interesting that this sermon falls on a day when there are a lot of people stressed and, and perhaps wondering or struggling with, with invisible wounds of anxiety, fear, depression, darkness. So as Keith was speaking about, do you see this woman? I was thinking about right away the parable of the Good Samaritan because there were two people that walked down the road and didn't really look at the wounded person and there was a third person that did. We know the story. And likely, most of us, when we read that parable, think, well, I'd be the guy that would stop, naturally. And it's probably true. If you saw somebody on the side of the road, this happens fairly often. I mean, it happens sometimes anyways. There's an accident on the side of the road. Oftentimes, it's somebody just slipped off the road. And we usually do stop, especially for the first one, especially if we don't have a ton of kids in the car or something. We're going to stop, and we're going to see what we can do. Um... But oftentimes people's true wounds are a little bit harder to see than somebody just slipping off into the ditch. Sometimes people's wounds, the injury might have happened weeks ago, months ago, even years ago, and people are still in the ditch, and people still need help. And kind of my background with this, um, throughout our missions journey, we've experienced a lot of things, and a lot of them, I mean, speaking of invisible wounds, it's hard to express exactly what burnout feels like, what culture shock feels like, what reverse culture shock feels like, what intense you know, loneliness and, and anxiety and things feel like. But something that's fairly concrete is post-traumatic stress. And um, in 2014, I was kidnapped for an afternoon traffic accident, went sideways in another country, and you know, I was kidnapped and and they wanted to make sure I would pay and, and you know, I, I, I really thought I was going to die. Uh, the situation really got dire. And God sent some people in to deliver me and negotiate the situation and got me out. And, um, you know, I'm thankful for that. It was only a few hours long, um, but it was traumatic, obviously. And uh, one of the first things that um, happened after that is I debriefed with somebody for our mission, and he kind of told me the things that I should have done, and I, his intentions were good, but I now consider that as part of the trauma, 
because that really set my chaotic mind in the direction of thinking, what should I have done? And there was a part of my brain that stayed dedicated to the task of figuring out what I should have done for at least four years after that. And that's very typical of post-traumatic stress. The, your brain, when you hit a traumatic experience, says, that should never happen again. And we're going to dedicate resources to making sure that never happens again. But when it, some of these situations, it's like it will never happen again. Or maybe there was no way to avoid it. You know, and so there's no there's no end to this thought loop, and yet resources are being sent that direction. We're going to talk a little bit more about brain chemistry and resources uh, in a few minutes here. Um, but I finally found help. I went to you know kind of regular counseling, talked through the event, and it was helpful. The counselor told me, I think you did really good in what you did. You know, you handled it well, considering and that was helpful. I went to caring for the heart, did some Christian counseling, forgave people, saw Jesus there. That helped as well. But part of my brain was still dedicated to this task until I did a therapy called EMDR. And I forget what it stands for, but it's basically just looking back and forth quickly while you talk dispassionately about the event. And there's something about that that scientists have found. When you look back and forth quickly, you engage both hemispheres of your brain. Um, and when you, you're not trying to solve the event because that's a prefrontal cortex operation, you just tell me what happened. Just see the event as you're looking back and forth and getting your whole brain woken up. And there's something about that as you recount a traumatic event step by step with a therapist and everything like that, that your brain is able to say, okay, that's what happened. Now it's going into long-term storage. It makes sense to me now. And we were able to unhook my brain from that thought loop. And it, it really made a huge difference. It's been three months now and I... I could go through that, it wasn't my most favorite thing to talk about, but I wasn't up all night last night thinking about the fact that I was going to talk about this. It wasn't, I wasn't reliving the event. So I say that to say there's people that are struggling with stuff. And sometimes the answer is not try harder, it's not necessarily something spiritual or <laughs> sin or repent or forgive. Sometimes we just need help of some sort. So when I look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, I see it in a completely different light. And I just want to share a little bit about that. My sermon is called The Good Samaritan, Caring for Unseen Wounds. And there are people that are struggling with wounds that you can't see. And it can be very difficult because how do you help these people? So just to give us context, we need to understand where, where this parable comes from. Somebody asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So basically, we know this. This is the center of Christianity. It's love. Love God, love your neighbor. But wishing to justify himself, the man said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The God part's not a problem, Right? Partially because it's hard to judge, right? I love God with all my heart. All right, I'll take your word for it. I love my neighbor as myself. No, I can tell. <laughs> I can tell you're not doing that. Um, not that we should be judging one another, but wanting to justify himself, he says, well, who is my neighbor? I'm pretty good at loving some people, but not, not loving everybody. And so that's where this parable comes from. Jesus, and So just keep that in the back of your mind. That this is talking about the center of Christianity of love. And Jesus starts to tell this story. I'm just going to pick out a bunch of stuff and, and, 
and we're going to go through it. It's a really fun story in that it all hangs together. We like stories. So a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Little tidbit of information. Pay attention when people go up or down in scriptures. It's a, it's a literary figure that oftentimes people will use. If you read, you can reread the book of Jonah and take note of every time that Jonah goes down or Jonah goes up. And you'll notice which direction his life is headed at those inter intervals. So somebody's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Part of the reason you go up to Jerusalem and down from Jerusalem is because Jerusalem is on top of a mountain. But it's also symbolic. There's a lot of songs that talk about going up to Jerusalem. You're usually singing and you're anticipating going to the temple. But you can't stay on the mountaintop all the time. So this man is coming down from Jerusalem. He's had his experience in Jerusalem, now he's coming down. That's life. You go up, you go down. But he didn't realize how, down, how far down he was going to go. And he fell among robbers. Now there's three things that happen to this guy. The first thing that happens is he falls among robbers. The, the linguistic imagery is that he's surrounded. And this idea of being surrounded, there's something very important that happens in our brain when we face danger. Anybody know what is secreted in our brain when we, when we encounter danger? What's the hormone? Cortisol. Cortisol. I was going more for adrenaline, but both of them, right? Immediate threat. Adrenaline, cortisol, your pupils dilate, means they get bigger, you get tunnel vision, you focus on the danger, your, your heart rate goes up, all your blood goes to your, your legs which, and, and your arms, which often gives you cold hands, shuts down your digestion, gives you a cotton mouth, you're ready to go, right? And if the danger is stronger than you, but slower, you're going to turn around and run, right? There's some sort of a, I don't know, a, a big fat bully or something. <laughs> That's not politically correct to say. Um, the fact that he can run faster. <laughs> I, mean, I was trying to think of an animal, but there's not really any animals you can outrun. Um, anyways, if the, if the danger is stronger but slower, you're going to run. And that's just going to happen on an instinctual level. That if you really identify the danger, you're out of there you're going to run, or that's going to be your, your, your tendency. If the danger is faster than you, but weaker, you're going to get ready to fight, right? If you see an animal in the woods or something like that, and it's looking scrappy, and it's looking like it wants to take a bite of you, or you get chased down, you're jogging, this happened to me not too long ago, jogging down the road and a dog starts chasing you, you're going to turn around, I cannot run this thing, but I can scare it. Right? And you make yourself look as big as you can, you yell it, and you hope that the dog told, that its owner's told it to say, that its owners have said bad dog because that's bad dog, go home. And it's like, oh, great, awesome. Um, but what if the danger is stronger and faster than you? Then you freeze. Then, you, then you're like a rabbit. You freeze, right? And that's, that's your last defense. If that doesn't work, you're done for, right? That sense of freezing. How many people have experienced a sense of freezing? when they didn't want it to happen. You watch, walk into a social situation, you freeze. Or you get up to speak, you freeze. Or whatever. The, the, this, this can happen long after the event that's, that, that terrified you. You can, you can have this sense of freezing. And that's, that's your body saying, there's danger, I need to protect you. But you're not faster and you're not stronger, so just do nothing, freeze. 
But freezing didn't help. The robbers stripped him. First thing they did was they stripped him. Now there's two reasons for this, and now maybe you're wondering why I came up here with my sweater on. It's partially because I'm really cold for some reason, and partially because this is a wool sweater. And I thought this is kind of appropriate because this is what he would have been wearing or maybe had over his shoulder. Um, the people in that day would have had a cloak all the time that would have been an outer garment, and it would, be, it would have been warm enough that you could sleep in it because it's a desert, uh, it's an arid place, and at night it gets very cold, even though during the day it's very warm. And there's laws in the Old Testament about, um, like, a garment like this, well, it's expensive for us, right? I got this at Second Chance for 20 bucks, but it's 100% uh, wool from New Zealand, so I'm very excited with this sweater. Um, so a, a sweater like this, pure wool, is expensive for us, right? And a sweater for them would have been fairly expensive for the, for the average Joe. It would have cost several thousand dollars in our currency. But you needed to have it. And so the fact that it was taken from him was a really big deal. There's verses in the Old Testament about if somebody gives you a pledge and says, okay, well, I need to borrow this, and if I don't pay it back, you can have my cloak. You could do that, but you had to give the cloak back at night. Because you couldn't hold on to somebody's cloak during the night. That's just cruel and inhumane. And the Old Testament had laws about, you know, you got to treat people with some decency. To take away somebody's cloak meant a lot of things. One is that now at night he can't sleep. He's cold. And he's burning up useless calories just keeping himself warm at night. And that's a big deal. The second thing is that the cloak would have said something about him. I don't know if it was a good cloak, a bad cloak, if it was clean, whatever. It would, you would have looked at him and said, oh, that's okay, yeah. I mean, you tell things about people by how they're dressed, right? Well, now he's a naked beggar on the side of the road. His appearance is different. And he has no protection for what comes next. Because the next thing that happens is they beat him. They stripped off his cloak, and then the Greek says, and they laid blows upon him. They lead, and, and then again, it's literary device. Luke is very literary in how he tells the story, where, where Jesus is, but Luke is recounting it. They laid the blows upon him. So now this man is carrying abuse. And people that look at him see it. Oh, that, that guy got beat up. They can see it, because he's carrying the abuse. He's not carrying anymore his outer garment. He's carrying the abuse. He's been clothed and abuse. I want to back up now and talk more about um, no, not yet. And they went away leaving him half dead. And they went away, they got what they wanted, they went away and they left him half dead. And this saying half dead, I thought that's significant. I'm going to research that. And I went back to the Greek, and it's the same thing, half dead. Interesting. So we have this expression in English, we have it in Greek, half dead. And I'm an optimist. My wife says she's a realist, and so we make a good couple. And I was like, well, he's half alive. Could be worse, right? He should be happy. But there's something about being halfway dead, halfway alive, that is not a blessing. It's not like a cup that's half full, half empty, and you know the air and the water get along, so to speak. Because everybody knows it's okay. It's good to be fully alive, right? 
We want to be fully alive. There's all these psalms about my heart and soul rejoice, and so, uh, Proverbs about rejoice in the life of your youth, verses at the end of Ecclesiastes that talk about um, enjoy your youth while you are young, you have so many things to do. Enjoy the work that God has given you and the children that God has blessed you with. Enjoy life. Enjoy food. Thank God before you eat it. You know, just enjoy life. Be fully alive. It's good. You might disagree with me, but it's also good to be fully dead. It's good in the sense that there's a time for it. There's a place for it. Uh, in Ecclesiastes it says there's a time to be to give birth and there's a time to die. It's okay. When the time comes, it's okay to let go. It's okay to be fully dead. Um, and I think that, and you know, spiritually speaking, we actually kind of celebrate this. You know, Paul in the book of Philippians was talking about, I would love to leave and be with Jesus because that's much better. But I've decided that I'm going to stay and, and I'm going to pray that God lets me stay and serve you instead of getting a death sentence. And, and, and it's okay that we feel that pull. I want to go to heaven because that, be, that would be better. It's, I want to be dead and go on to the next life because I'm looking forward to what's over there. We even have songs about this. Um, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away in the morning. When I die, hallelujah, by and by. Wait, hallelujah? By and by, I'll fly you know, like we're rejoicing about the fact that we're going to die because we do have hope of what's on the other side. I've become more and more interested in the physiological aspects of our emotions and moods based on what has happened to me and the therapy that I received, the successful therapy. And I have a theory that I'm pretty sure is true, but it is my theory, I'm not an expert. But I think that animals, and there is, you know, a, an animal side of us or a physiological side of us, but animals... When they know they're going to die, some animals are just like, I'm not sticking around for this part, and they just die. Um, a, a mouse won't do this. A cat will play with a mouse for a long time, and the end is not nice for the poor mouse. But a flying squirrel, I've heard, if you try and, and, and make a pet out of a flying squirrel, it won't work, because if you pick it up, it's like, it's going to eat me! And it just dies, right? I mean, you got to kind of understand where the squirrel is coming from, right? When it's time to go, it's time to go. And I think there is part of our physiological brain that at a certain point says, it's time to go. It's time to let go. It's time to go. And this man went through a near-death experience where he thought he was going to be beaten to death. And now he's lying on the side of the road. And part of his brain, his you know, fleshly or, or human brain, the body part of him is saying, we're not going to make it out of this. It's time to go. But there's still enough of him that's alive that's saying, no, we can get out of this. We need to get better. And so there's this, he's half dead. And it's agony. The living part wants to be fully alive, but it can't be because he's half dead. And the half dead part wants to be fully dead and just move on, but it can't be because he's alive. If he had been killed and robbed, that would be a tragedy. But he's half dead. And that's agony. And there are people whose physical wounds are healed, but they're still half dead. And they're still in agony. 
So by chance, a priest was going down the road. No, I'm going to say one more thing about that. Went back up to stripped. They stripped him. They stripped him of his outer garment. And that left him vulnerable. But they also stripped him of other things. You know, after I had an accident in Africa, I no longer believed that I was safe. Before that, I walked down the street, I did business, I drove in my car, I felt safe. No longer felt safe anymore after that. I no longer went out. When I did go out, I went out with somebody and I felt fear. You know, my, my, my brain was saying, stay awake, stay alert. There was something that I lost. I was stripped of something. Trauma can do this. We have a saying, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's not a scripture verse, it's something we say, and it's not always true. Because some things you go through and they make you weaker, and they take something away. You might say, that's really depressing. Why are you saying that? Because I want you to see people that are struggling and hurting. And it might be true, and it might give some people hope to say, you can get through this, and many people have gotten through this, and when you get through the other side, it often makes you stronger. Maybe. But let's stop to see. Let's see the person first. And then we'll help them try and heal. So then, two people walk by. By chance, a priest was going down. Oh, was he going up a road? No, he's going down a road. Interesting. A priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side. I'm sure we could go into a lot of detail here. I'm going to skip over things just to say, um, basically, it's like a pastor and somebody from a good Christian family, right? So, like, Pastor Joe walked by, didn't help him, walked by on the other side of the road. And then, um, Trying to think of a name that uh, nobody here. Um, Jeremy, who from a good Christian background, also walks by because Levites were kind of the special of the special in, in, as far as lineage, and he doesn't help them. These guys didn't have anywhere to be. It says by chance. The the wounded man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and the Samaritans we're going to see, he was on a journey. He had a place to be. But these guys didn't have anywhere to go. They just went there by chance. They were somewhere by chance. Oh, I'm here. Check my phone. <laughs> right? <laughs> they, they didn't really have anywhere to be. And yet they passed by on the other side. And you would have expected them to stop. Why didn't they stop? Well, I don't know. It doesn't say. So I'm going to guess. Um, they were both very religious people. And... In looking at our religion, and looking at other religions, I've realized that perhaps the most fundamental question in religion is why do people suffer? This is something that bothers us fundamentally. Why do people suffer? Because we see people suffering all the time. And it bothers us. We can't get away from it. We can't. It keeps us up at night. It causes fear. It causes anxiety. Why is that person suffering? They shouldn't be suffering. When you see somebody happy, that's great. 
makes you happy. There's suffering. Why is there so much suffering? And there's at least three reasons why it bothers us that people suffer. It could be me next time. See somebody suffering? That could be me. So that, that makes us pay attention, right? Maybe I could suffer. Maybe I could get what they have. Maybe, maybe I could get robbed. Could be me. Um, this could cost me. Maybe I should help the person. And we're going to see the Samaritan dishes out some serious coin. This could cost me. Well, that, I don't, I have my own reasons for my resources. I don't want it to cost me. This shouldn't be. Fundamentally, if people suffer like that, this should not be. Maybe I don't live in a just universe. Maybe God isn't in control. Maybe good people suffer and bad people get away with bad things. This shouldn't be. And so, I think this is the whole book of Job, is that Job's friends showed up to try and comfort Job, and they were so consumed by trying to resolve this internal tension between, that could happen to me, this shouldn't, this could cost me, and this shouldn't be, that they just spent chapters upon chapters trying to, what's the answer? Blame the sufferer. And this is the answer of religion. This is karma. You're suffering, it's because you sinned. I don't remember sinning. The previous version of you sinned. Okay, can't say anything to that. Um, or the same in, in Islam. Well, Allah is just. You're suffering because of some sin that you don't know about. The same thing with the ancient Jews. Who sinned? This man or his parents, that he should be born blind. There's justice in the world. Somebody sinned. You deserve it. You deserve it. And if you deserve it, well, that's, that fixes everything. It's so convenient. Because it's not going to happen to me because I didn't do the stupid thing you did. And it doesn't have to cost me because it's you that did the stupid thing. And I don't have to have an existential angst about the universe because God is just. And this is the direction that religion often goes. And yet Jesus clears this up somewhere. Lost in my notes. But he's talking about... Um, the, temp, the uh, people that got killed in the temple and a tower fell on some other people just in local news at the time. And he said these people weren't worse sinners than anybody else because this happened to them. You can't look at somebody in misfortune and say they're a worse sinner. That's why that happened. He said we're all, you are all sinners. And unless you repent, bad things will happen to you too. And that means that when you see somebody suffering, you can't just feel all high and mighty and say, well, you're suffering because of your own mistakes. And that doesn't have to cost me anything. And I can just feel all and walk to the other side of the road and say, well, God is just and he's punishing you. No, we need to stop and help people. Now, that being said, I do just, this could become overwhelming, especially to some people. So I do want to emphasize, these are people that were walking along and somebody was suffering in their road. And they shared a five-dimensional space with this person and they had the resources to help, Okay. We don't. Jesus bore the, the weight of the world on his shoulders, but we can't. We can't. Okay. Um, and there's there's plenty of people that are suffering, but they're not in your road. But there are people suffering, and they are in your road. And you're not doing anything else really with your resources. Or maybe you are, like the Samaritan that, that we'll see, and you can't help them. That's the person you need to worry about. Don't get overwhelmed by 
Facebook and social media and people far away. Also, don't let yourself off the hook. Hey, I gave money over there, so I'm going to walk on the other side of the road because that looks like a lot of work. No. Care about the person in front of you first, and if there's leftover, for sure, help other people that are far away. So let's look at the Samaritan. He was on a journey. He had somewhere to be. He had something to do. He was a busy guy. Is there an expression, if you want something done, ask a busy person? He was on a journey, and he came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. He felt compassion. This is the same reason that Jesus heals people, because he feels compassion. And maybe this is worth saying, too, that if you leave this sermon with a huge burden of guilt, oh, I should be helping people, maybe you shouldn't. People don't want to be the outlet of your guilt. They want to be the recipient of your compassion. And when you feel genuine human compassion, people can tell. And they don't feel as though they need to pay you back. You know, I think that's the, that's the issue. People don't, if you help people out of guilt, they feel like they got to help you back. And people don't want to be indebted to you. But when they sense the compassion, they sense that they get to help you back. And maybe we can be friends, or I can pay it forward. Compassion is a beautiful thing. And when he came to him, he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So there's a bunch here. But bottom line is, he took the stuff that he had. We're going to see the Samaritan is not an expert, and he is a busy guy. He's going to delegate the care of this person to somebody else. But he took what he had. Well, I got, what do I got on the donkey here? I got, I got some wine. Can't have just water, because you'll get all sorts of terrible things. But you got water, and you mix a bit of wine with it. Let it sit, and you can drink it, right? So he's got some wine, and he puts it on the cuts to kill the infection. And then he's got some oil, because he's already got scabs, and he's got scabs all over the place. And if you move a scab, and it's dry and hot, it cracks, and it feels terrible. So he rubs the oil in there, just make the skin move a little bit. And he bandages him up, does some first aid, stops the bleeding. And then, this isn't, this isn't something that feels nice, but he loads him up on the donkey, and we're going to go. He does basic first aid. He does compassion. There's more that needs to be done, but what this guy does is crucial. He sees somebody hurting, and he stops enough to care. What's going on in, in your life? What's going on? How can I help with what I have? I can't fix everything, but I can use what I have. I can use what I have. What do you have? You have a car. You have the availability to go out for coffee with someone, talk to someone. Maybe do a private message on Facebook. How's it going? What's going on? You seem kind of down today. What do you have? Ask somebody out for a meal, take a meal over. Again, thank you so much for the move and the, you guys have been awesome. Um, but using what they have. And he took him from the place he was. I want to just emphasize the importance of geographical spaces. How many, I bet you there's a lot of people, maybe you don't have to raise your hands, but how many have had a harrowing experience somewhere on the highways around here? Yeah, I, I see nods, I think you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have a corner that every time you go around that corner you think, oh, that was the corner. 
That's where the moose stepped out, and I almost died. That's where, that's where I did a little whoop, you know, and almost hit the ditch, you know. Our brains catalog these things. Because there's part of your brain that's always trying very hard to keep you alive. And that part of your brain says, when you hit that area, and it's amazing how you can remember things. Like, it's not like there's a signpost or something. And like, there's a lot of rocks and a lot of trees. But your brain says, whoa, that's the place. Those are those rocks and those trees. Pay attention, pay attention. But what happens when you pay attention too long is the adrenaline wears off and you go into cortisol. Talked about a rabbit earlier. A rabbit, imagine getting chased by wolves. I saw this on a documentary I was watching with the kids. In the north, these snowshoe hares getting chased by a pack of wolves. That rabbit's not having a good day. And, you know, the rabbit smells the wolves and he freezes, right? And that's a pretty good defense because he looks exactly like everything else for hundreds of thousands of kilometers. But then they find him and they chase him, and, and sometimes he outruns them and sometimes he doesn't. But let's just say he outruns them and he lives to see another day. Well, is that rabbit, is that snowshoe hair now going to have a good peaceful night's sleep and munch on some tundra and go on to his day? No, wolves are in the area. He's on high alert. So that's cortisol. That's not adrenaline. Adrenaline is, let's go right now. Cortisol is kind of a long-term burn that we have. And it means you're not in a safe place. This is, you know, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is refugees. You know, people that were not in a safe place. We can't sleep well at night. We need to stay alert because everything could change instantly. And what cortisol does over a long period of time is called the death hormone because it's bad for you. Now, it'll keep you alive if there's wolves in the area. But it's sacrificing long-term health for short-term life. And it's shutting down the digestive system. Because who cares if you digest well if there's a tiger chasing you around a tree? You want all the energy for chase for running away from the tiger. Shuts down your immune system. Because the immune system takes energy and resources. So the immune system is compromised. Shuts down sleep. You don't want to sleep. You want to hear every noise at night. Because something might be relevant. Something might be dangerous. Shuts down happiness. There's literally a hormone in the brain that makes you happy. It's called serotonin. But you don't, and it makes you not just happy, but feel content. Feel like you just want to sit on your lazy boy and just, ah. And just drink your coffee and, and sing away and, and relax. And digest and have your immune system, you know, do all those things that the body does when it knows that it's in a safe place. But when you're in a dangerous place, your body says, oh, no, 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 This is not a time for lazy boy. This is a time for, for high alert. Cortisol is a wonderful thing for keeping us alive, but it's a terrible thing when the switch stays on long term. And geographical spaces can keep the switch on because there's triggers. I remember that rock. That's where the guy jumped out from. I remember that stick. That's what he hit me with. I remember this bend in the road. That's where I thought of it. That's where everything changed for me. And people can be in a geographical space, a room, a house, a town, where bad things happen. And sometimes the kindest thing you can do to somebody with invisible wounds is say, let's go for a car ride and go somewhere else and just get you out of this space. 
Get you somewhere where there's light. Get you somewhere where there's new experiences. Get you somewhere else. And he takes him to an inn. It's a good place to take him. And he gave uh, the innkeeper two denarii, which is two days' wage, and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So we earn somewhere between $100 to $200 a day, depending, some more, some less. So two days' wage would be about two to $400, about just to give us context. But it went a lot longer, so this would, this would be able to pay it in for one to two months. And this is also, like, it's harder to get money. People would tend to get paid in, in products more than money. So it was hard to, it was expensive what he spent on it. It's one thing to say one day's wage, but when do, you, when do you get far enough ahead to save up one day's wage, right? And he says, whatever else you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Again, the Samaritan did not spend the rest of his life caring for this man. He didn't even spend two days caring for this man that had serious needs. He took him somewhere where somebody else could care for him. And he made sure that he had the care that he needed. I think that might be the most relevant thing that we learned today. Is that, you know, sometimes we just walk by people because you're like, I can't deal with that. Like, you're hurting more than I can help. Maybe you're not the only answer. Maybe your solution is to offer compassion, offer some first aid, ask some basic questions. How are you doing? Are you having thoughts of harming yourself? How are you sleeping at night? How are you doing? Can I bring you to someone else? Can I find out about some services in town? And we have some great services in town, by the way. Free counseling at um, community counseling and addiction services. Any of you guys can do that anytime. It's free. And anybody can go into, in Canada, can just go into the hospital and say, I'm having issues. And they'll refer you. Um, or, you know, you can help a friend do that. You don't need to suffer alone. It's wonderful. Um, what, what is available to us? And just make a note. You know, maybe it's not the best thing. Maybe it wouldn't have been the best thing for the Samaritan to say, all right, come home with me. Live with me for the next 10 years. I'm going to be the answer to all of your problems. There's something a little bit off about that. Sometimes you know your limitations. Samaritan's a busy guy. But he's got a little bit extra money, a little bit extra wine, a little bit extra oil. And he's got just a little bit extra time, and he's got a donkey. And he puts them to good use. And it ends with, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the man said, the one who showed mercy towards him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. Go show mercy. And what this does, we talked about somebody hanging between death and life. Should I live? Should I die? Which part of me should win? Because, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. Um, Jordan Peterson is a clinical psycholo psychologist, or psychiatrist, I always forget which one, um, who uh, has done work on PTSD. And he said, post-traumatic stress disorder happens because we encounter evil that we can't deal with. Our brain can't process it. More evil than we were expecting. There's two kinds of evil. There's natural evil, sickness, accidents, bad things happening, 
wild animals, and there's moral evil. Evil people doing evil things, and sometimes ourselves doing evil things. And the second of these is far more traumatic. And this man hit absolute evil. And he's never going to be the same again. And that definitely plays into, should I live? Is life worth living? Which side of me should have the final day, the death part or the life part? Well, there's evil people. I could be walking down the street, people see me, beat me up, take everything and leave me. Why would I want to live? What does this Samaritan do? He takes him to a place of safety. He shows him mercy. He creates a place of healing. And he says, take all the time you need to get better. When I come back, I'll make sure that you're still getting what you need. That goes a long ways towards telling somebody life is worth living. Yes, there's dangers out there. Yes, I need to stay awake. Yes, I need to take precautions. But in here, there's safety. In here, there's decent people. In here, there is love and compassion and mercy. And that gives me some hope. Gives me some hope that we can move forward and that life is worth living. Heavenly Father, we wish to go and do the same. And we are aware that uh, we are ill-equipped for the task. But we're reminded that so was the Samaritan. We don't have much. He didn't have much either. But Lord, I just pray that there would be one person this week that we would see in our path. And that we would really see them for the suffering and the, the anguish that they're in. And then we move by compassion to do something about it. And Lord, with, uh, with this virus raging across the world, we know there's a lot of people that are struggling with just anxiety, just trying to figure out what to do, how to cope. I just pray, Lord Jesus, that we can care for people and that we can provide safety in tangible means and in emotional means. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would equip us for this task and that you send us on it. In Jesus' name, I pray this.